Welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event this evening with Damon Galgut in conversation with Chris Power. So Damon Galgut is the author of nine acclaimed novels and he won the Booker Prize in 2021 for The Promise, having been shortlisted twice before for The Good Doctor and In a Strange Room. Um, he lives and works in Cape Town and we're thrilled that he joins us this evening to talk about The Promise, which is out this week in paperback in the UK and has also just been shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize. It's an extraordinary read and I know that Newham Books, our independent bookshop partner, will be delighted to help you if you haven't already got a copy and details will be in the chat. The Promise charts the crash and burn of a white South African family living outside Pretoria, and it is a tour de force, as the Booker Prize judges said, a spectacular demonstration of how the novel can make us see and think afresh. So please put all your questions for Damon in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens, and I know that Chris is going to try to come to as many as he can towards the end of this one-hour session. In conversation with Damon this evening, we're thrilled to have Chris Power with us, the author of the novel A Lonely Man, which was a Washington Post and New Statesman Book of the Year, and the short story collection Mothers, which was longlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize and shortlisted for the Edge Hill Short Story Prize. He can often be heard on Open Book on Radio 4 presenting, and we are thrilled to have him. So I hand over now to Chris. I say a huge thank you for you all for being here with us and um, welcome. Thank you, Daisy. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And hello, uh, Damon. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure and, and an honour for me to have an opportunity to talk to Damon. Um, he's, been he's been a writer who's been ploughing such a, such a rich and individual furrow for, for decades now, having published his first book in 1982 when he was just 17. Um, Daisy talked about those. The Well, she said nine novels. I'm going to say eight novels and a, and a short story collection that includes a novella. I don't know if that's getting uh, like, like getting too picky at the start, but, um, but we're here to talk about primarily about The Promise, um, his eighth slash ninth novel, which, um, which won the Booker Prize in 2021 and, and an award that it was so fully deserving of. For anyone who hasn't, hasn't read it, I hope you'll be cracking it open shortly after this conversation. It's, it's really an extraordinary piece of work. Um, and as Daisy mentioned, those, those other books, there's um, The Good Doctor and In a Strange Room were both shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, and we might touch on, on some of those other books in our conversation, but I feel that time is already tight because The Promise is a text that gives rise to, to so many questions. There's so much in it that's worth talking about. Um, it's a book that spans almost the same period of time, Damon, as your own career to date, running from 1986 to around 2018. And it centers on the Swart family who live on a farm in the countryside outside Pretoria. For those in our audience who are yet to read the book, and we're going to do our best to ride a line carefully between those who have and those who haven't read the book and try and avoid any, any spoilers. Could you describe the Swarts and the, and the situation they find themselves in at the beginning of the book? Sure. Um, just briefly, um, because I haven't had a moment to do that, thank you to, to both of you for that very, very kind um, introduction. I'm really pleased to be here and to be having this conversation. Um, the, the book begins in 1986, um, which um, was the time of the state of emergency, very tail end of apartheid in South Africa. And the Swats are a family of uh, five, two parents known as Ma and Pa and three um, 
children, um, an, eldest, an elder brother called Anton, little sister called Astrid, and a young sister called Amor, who is still a teenager. Um, and Ma has been dying for some time, and at the outset of the book, um, the news comes to Amor at school that her mother has died. Um, so um, I don't know how much you'd like me to say, but the, the book is structured around four funerals, and what follows in that first section um, is really a very sort of concentrated burst of action around the funeral of uh, Amor's mother. Um, and the, well, the, fam the, the family uh, relationships with the power play on a small scale that that implies, you know, um, is enacted. And I think in the background, a sort of larger scale uh, enactment of power um, is taking place in terms of the country and where it's at, which as I say, back in 1986 was, um, yeah, a, a dark time and a very different time to the one we're in now. And the SWAT, I'm gonna come on to the, the, the promise that gives the book its title um, in a little bit, but. But to look at those, the siblings in the Swart family, they're, they're, they're very different um, in ways that make their relationships with one another quite, quite tricky as the book goes on. But are they also like every man and every woman? Was your intention that they should be representative of a wide band of, of white South Africans? Well, I guess um, in one way or another, they give expression to certain perceptions I have about white South Africans. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think white South Africa, like any other group of people, comes down to absolutely boxed in identifiable characteristics, but um, certainly the ones that I recognize from, you know, my growing up in Pretoria, um, I sort of poured into, into the book one way or another. But there's also the obvious fact that, you know, you can't write characters without drawing on some aspect of yourself. So ugly or beautiful, these um, many strands of character are, are ones I relate to, you know, personally as well. I mean, they're exaggerated in lots of instances for, you know, to, to a cartoonish degree sometimes. There are really only two characters, I think, um, that matter in the sense that um, they become the two opposing poles of the book or the, the two antagonists, if you like, who are in some sense, circling each other. And that's more of the youngest sister and Anton, the eldest brother. And they, they, I think, represent quite particular things um, about my own experience of white South Africa. Um, and it's sort of inevitable that only one of them will be there by the end of the book. And I hope there's a slight tension, not a major one, in um, you know draw, drawing that process out. Um, Anton, I guess, being more or less my coeval, was um, you know born at a time when the future looked very, very blissful and beautiful for white males in South Africa, and I think he feels his future as you know loaded with promise. Um, and more of the youngest daughter sort of has an impulse, a moral impulse. If if the book has a moral center, she she is it. Um, her impulse lies in the opposite direction. And um, I think her, her instinct is to, to give up privilege and power, but um, you know, that is perhaps less easy than she thinks it might be. Anyway, before I ramble on, that's-, that's um... <laughs> Well, this, this, 
you know, as the book revolves around around them, sort of at the center of, of their their relationship, the sort of at the core of it that they keep coming back to is this this promise that's made early on by by Marnie, the, the patriarch of the family, to his to his dying wife, that they'll that he'll give the family's maid Salome her house, the house she lives in, that she'll be given its deed and title. Um, but to talk just for a moment about Salome specifically, there's a there's a moment when Anton is talking to a lover about her and is asked who she is, and he says the woman who, and then stops himself and says, our maid. And that word maid seems so insufficient, the description of her. I mean, a couple of pages earlier, you mentioned that as a child, Anton would try and suck on her nipple, so close was their, their bond. While she's also an individual character, is she representative of, of, were there sort of generations of black women who effectively raised white children in South Africa who had these very intimate relationships but weren't allowed into the sort of inner sanctum of the family. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. Um, in fact, I mean, she's mentally modeled on, on a nanny that I had, my, my first nanny, who was a kind of substitute mother for me when I was really little. Um, I'm talking about, you know, the age of two, three, four. Um, and her, her name was Salome. Um, I, I, I realized the classical European pronunciation is Salome, but in South Africa, it sort of gets squashed. Her name was Salome, and partly in tribute to her, I, I wanted to call the character by the same name. Um, but yes, I mean, these are women who, who mostly had families of their own, who they left behind to be raised by grandmothers or, or other relations, and then came to live with white families in a, usually a very small uh, inadequate room at the back of the house and and take care of amongst other things the children of the family but you know as as you might imagine quite um meaningful and intimate bonds can spring up in a in an artificial relationship like that um and very often i mean in amongst the racism and the the presumed um you know placement on the hierarchies of power um there would be strange sort of um, gestures made across the divide in that, you know, some, some families would take it on themselves to educate the children of the people who work for them or to uh, build a house for them back where, you know, the, the family is living and so on. Not saying this is a widespread practice, but there, there are these strange, again, intimate gestures that could be interpreted as kind and, and supportive in amongst all the ugly stuff. So yes, yes, she's a she's an absolutely recognisable figure to almost every white South African household, I would think. You mentioned um, a little earlier about the state of emergency in '86 when the book begins, and I think that was around the time I was about eleven or twelve. Then I think that was the time I sort of really started to understand what was happening in. South Africa because we we're seeing news reports of, of unrest and and you know it was made me question my elders about what was what was really happening here. Um, why was that the point at which you wanted the book to begin? Um, well, you know, I, I I've used this device. I mean, not to repeat myself, of, of four family funerals, and each one is set in a different decade. So part of the fascination with that for me is that you can register um, with these big jumps of time how much has changed between each 
section of the book. Um, and clearly, you know, it made sense in terms of South Africa that you would register the very, very fundamental and dramatic change that came about in, in the 90s when we had our first democratic election. But what, what better way to do that than to begin under, you know, um, the dying days of white rule when, when uh, it was at its most repressive and, and um, you know, um, iron-fisted. So the logic really was that, um, firstly, it's a very memorable period. I was, I was coming into adulthood at the time and, and you know, you, you're beginning to perceive the world in a new way. Um, but what I perceived was very kind of frightening, you know, um, there were bombs all over the country, there was a threat of unrest, there were riots, but the news was also being suppressed under the state of emergency, so, you know, newspapers were not able to report um, what was actually happening, so there was a kind of airless feeling in which violence was taking place in the shadows. Um, so to, to move from that to the kind of, you know, the roof coming off, the sense of openness and air and light that um, characterized the Mandela era, that's quite a dramatic shift. So just, you know, purely from the point of view of, you know, want, wanting to structure the book in, in ways that are dramatically satisfying as well as informative, that was a, that was a good way to go. Yeah, I think that, that, that sense of, of, of time passing and the way people change is one of the most extraordinary things about the book. I, I want to come back to that in a little bit. Um, I'd like to talk about more. Before we do, could, could you read a little bit from the book just to give people a, a flavour? Sure. Um, this is a passage towards the end of the first section of the book um, where Amor is um, talking to her brother, Anton, about um, the promise that she overheard her father make. He did promise. I heard him. He promised Ma he would give Salome her house. Her little face is lit from within by its sureness. Amor, he says gently. What? Salome can't own the house. Even if Pa wanted to, he can't give it to her. Why not, she says, puzzled. Because, he says, it's against the law. The law? Why? You are not serious. Then he looks at her and sees how serious she is. Uh, dear me, he says, do you have no idea what country you're living in? No, she doesn't. Amor is 13 years old. History has not yet trod on her. She has no idea what country she's living in. She has seen black people running away from the police because they're not carrying their passbooks and heard adults talking in urgent low voices about riots in the townships. And only last week at school, they had to learn a drill about hiding under tables in case of attack. And still, she doesn't know what country she's living in. There's a state of emergency and people are being arrested and detained without trial. And there are rumors flying around, but no solid facts because there's a blackout on news and only happy, unreal stories are being reported. But she mostly believes these stories. She saw her brother's head bleeding yesterday from a rock, but still, even now, she doesn't yet know who threw the rock or why. Blame it on the lightning. She's always been a slow child. One thing, though, perturbs her. But why, she says, why did you tell Pa to give Salome her house if you knew he couldn't 
he shrugs. Because, he says, I felt like it. And it's exactly then, in the tiniest way, without even knowing it herself, that she begins to understand what country she's living in. So I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Damon. Um, Amour's obsession with the promise that her mother extracts from her father, you know, is Amour the only one able to, I mean, she's the one who keeps on bringing it back to the center of the conversation. Everyone else is sort of prepared to just forget it, give it a short shrift, you know, bury it. Um, and she keeps bringing it back, which does not make her very, very popular. Um, but is, she, is the reason why she can see it with such clarity because, and see it as so simple and so cut and dried, you know, this was a promise and we have to fulfill it. Is that because it happened when she was young enough that she hadn't been sort of compromised by the messiness of reality? Is, is it because of her innocence? I'm not sure I, I'm, um, I want to give you an entirely clear reply, but I'll tell you why not. Um, you know, I'm kind of mistrustful of, of um, books in which, you know, there's a, um, a leading character who, who is a moral example, um, as some kind of stand-in for the author who's pointing the way forward. So I'm resistant to a notion of Amor as, um, it, it, let, let me rephrase that. It's, it's not that I'm resistant to the notion of Amor as a, as a moral paragon. It's that I didn't want to make it entirely obvious, indisputably clear that that was the case. So, you know, there, there is this thing about her. She's, she was struck by lightning when she was six years old, when she was sitting up on the hill behind the house. And several other members of the family say at different points, oh, there's, there's something the matter with her. She's, she's not the same as the rest of us. And I wanted that to be a possibility too. In other words, that maybe in some way she's locked onto the right thing to do and cannot let it go, not because she is necessarily so morally motivated, but because she's just unable to behave in any other way. There, there's something a little bit, um, yeah, obsessive and, and um, lock, locked on, if, if I can put it like that. Um, but I also want it to, to be possible that she is in fact motivated by something that you might call more spiritual, something that simply won't let her, um, do anything except the right thing. Um, I just didn't want to make it, you know, I didn't want to declare it in, in um, uh, unambiguous rhetorical terms because um, I'm, I'm mistrustful of that sort of um, model for books, I guess. Um, yeah, I could, yeah. I, I could say more, but uh, I'm sure that's... Well, I I'm not surprised to hear that because I do think that, you know, as I read it, I, I sort of, you know, she, she's certainly not um, uh, a sort of, uh, um, you know, without, without pain or without suffering because of this. It's not like she's sort of, you know, the way and the truth and everyone else is, is down in the mire. I mean, she's, I think your portrayal of her really conveys and like you say, whether that's like a, a flaw in her or whether it's this belief she holds, but there's something sort of austere and even, even terrifying, how terrifying it can be to take a moral stand in a, in a society that sort of doesn't really want to, you know, 
deal in moral stands because it makes you face some very tough choices. I mean, whatever the truth lies with her, she's chosen a very hard path or a hard path has been sort of, uh, she's been set on a hard path, hasn't she? Well, well, her solution, her solution to this dilemma she faces, which is that, you know, she would like to give up her position, her power, um, I think is really to renounce her inheritance and her family and, and to make her own path. And her own path seems to be, um, well, it depends how you see it. I mean, um, uh, her brother, Anton, refers to her as a martyr, and he clearly sees her as, you know, self-martyring. Um, and that is a way to understand her. Um, but, you know, by the same token, you know, um, I don't want to make her more a, a, a kind of moral... Um, beacon or example um, in an unambiguous way. I also, I, I'm also wary of making characters unambiguously, you know, villainous. So, you know, even even though the rest of the family is not, um, you know, they're they're certainly not people one would necessarily want to hang out with or, um, you know. Uh, debate any sort of uh, profound moral questions with, they're also, I would hope, understandable in, in their small, shabby human ways. I mean, you know, it's, it's not that Anton wants um, out of evil impulses not to follow through on the, the promise, but he has enough sort of uh, self-interested distractions to keep him from actually taking any decisive action. It just seems to me that is more or less the way the world bumbles along, um, somewhere between fine intentions that are never properly executed and, you know, selfish intentions that are, um, yeah, more, more often carried out, but, but not necessarily, um, you know, evil in nature. This is, not, this is not to discount the possibility of real evil in the world, but I, I, I sort of think those characters are best reserved for another sort of uh, genre, maybe. <laughs> well, I think, um... I mean, we, we touched briefly on time and I, I think what comes across, you know, the way this novel is, is structured and the span of time it covers, you do get to see, I think, an incredible amount of nuance in, in all these characters. I think, um, you know, as, as they change over time, you know, the arc of lives and the decisions that ramify through their lives, these people sort of change and sometimes harden in ways that, um, surprise you or, or or disappoint you you know like oh no i really i really hope this 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 person was gonna was gonna go a different a different route um did you always know the way that the characters were going to change from one section to the next or did they or your subconscious ever ever surprise you along the way um yeah you, i mean i guess i figured it out as i went i mean certain things become inevitable right so um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were one or two characters, I guess, whose, whose trajectory wasn't that, wasn't necessarily that clear, but, um, you know, um, as you are in childhood, so you tend to be a little later in life, just a little bit further down the road, perhaps. So, um, you know, the, the map was already beginning to lean in certain directions, even, even from early on. Um, I mean, I, I regret maybe that uh, so many of the trajectories take a downward line. It might have been interesting to set at least somebody's course, you know, flying in the opposite direction. Um, but I guess it's true, really, that most human systems tend towards, you know, disintegration. 
um, and cer certainly on the level of each individual human life. Everything holds together for a while and then starts to unravel. I, I'm, certainly, <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly aware of that uh, process in my own life. But um, yeah, um, you know, the trajectory of, of South Africa in the background might have been one that that flowed in a different direction to the, you know, the downward trajectories of the characters. Uh, it, it wasn't my wish that South Africa's um, lifeline would be would be pulled down in that you know gravity heavy way, uh, and I wasn't I wasn't really working to an agenda either to to you know say anything about the decline of South Africa. But I am aware that just by conjuring the ethos of where each of you know those funerals was, I mean what what was happening in the country at that particular time. That the picture is a pretty depressing one. So, I guess on a national level and on a on a human level, um, you know, the lives that are being described are not um, necessarily uh, uplifting or uplifted. Mm. Well, I'd like to um, I'd like to remind those in the audience um, to put your questions in the um, chat box. Um, I will be getting to them. Um, in about 15, 20 minutes. Um, it would be remiss to, to talk about this book um, and not discuss um, the way it's written, um, not just the what, but the how. Um, it's written with this, this wonderful, very fluid point of view. Uh, you pass between characters, you switch from third person to first, sometimes in a, in a, in a single sentence. You dip into the consciousness of, of, of animals and at one point into the spirit world. Was this kind of um, uh, choral or symphonic approach uh, always a, your plan or did that sort of evolve while you were writing the book? No, it, it was definitely an evolutionary step. Um, and it, it came after I'd already sort of made a, made a beginning on the book. Um, you know, those sorts of changes, which I'm sure you know, Chris, um, writers tend to embrace when um, you're, you're, you're feeling frustrated in some way. And I, I guess looking back, my frustration was centered, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily know this myself at the time, but I think my frustration was centered on the fact that whatever, whatever you commit yourself to voice-wise with a book, be it first person or third person, you're confining yourself in some way. So um, certain things become possible, but other things not. So I, I, I got offered by, you know, fortuitously the chance to write a couple of drafts of a, of a film script um, and it's something I decided to do. And I, I set the book aside for about eight months and then went and did the script and then, and then came back to the book. Um, on the same day that I'd, I'd left this film project, and I, very, very strong in my mind still was the, I suppose, the logic and the, you know, the, just the texture of storytelling that film involves, which is to say um, a kind of mobile viewpoint, because you've got to think like a camera, like you can move very, very fast from one point of view to another, one scene to another. And suddenly I thought, well, that's what I want to do, you know, with, with, with the prose. And... The only thing that really stops me from operating like that is the fact that you're not supposed to do it. You know, I mean, I, I, I work with students a lot of the time and I would never allow them to do it. It, 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 it generally, it, it, it's sort of, you know, defying gravity. It, it doesn't really work. 
So I sort of had to overcome that internal resistance and, and, and play with it a bit. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to bore you with a, you know, a long description of a process, but, but, but it, it really was um, a sort of push-pull negotiation with myself. The, 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 the pull, I guess, was, was the sensation that this way of approaching, using a narrator who's, who's present, not as a character, but, but um, present in the way that a camera is in a, in a film, um, observing and moving very, very fast, but of course, you know, um, in a in a literary sense, commenting and and framing each moment for you in a you know with a with a tone and an attitude and so on. Um, that this actually is consonant with the way my mind works and the you know the rhythms of my own perception, and that actually it came naturally. And then there was you know the, the kind of push against that. From, intern from inside myself, um, the skeptic saying, but prose doesn't work like this. It's, it's going too fast. Readers will not follow you. Um, in a funny way, actually, I think it might have echoed um, a certain debate about cinema when um, reverse angle shots were first being, being used. I've, I've seen this in, in a documentary recently where you know, early directors simply didn't believe that an audience would stay with you. Um, if you if you reverse the angle of your perception, that they the audience would be confused as to where they were. In fact, it's been built into our visual language, and everyone understands it. So um, I suppose there's a certain inevitability about carrying you know aspects of film language over. I mean, lots and lots of us have done it. Maybe not this particular aspect of um, cinema, but but lots of lots of cinema language has been applied to to prose before with you know, interesting results. So anyway, that, that was the, the voice I brought to it. And it's, it's sort of freedom and its vitality are really, I think, the saving grace of the book. Um, the, the raw material of the book is very dark and gloomy, you know, death, decay, um, general decline, three big Ds. Um, <laughs> Whereas this, the voice of the book, I think, is is a sort of antidote. It's it's at least for me, full of uh, humor and zest, and a you know um, sardonic understanding of people's motives, and you know all of that. I I, I think um, work, works against the heavy material of the book. And um, you know, it's been interesting to notice that the people who who don't like the book don't seem to hear that the tone of it. Um, mm. the, the people who dislike a book don't find it humorous at all, whereas almost all the people who do like it find it very funny. So there's some sort of division there. You can't please everyone. That's <laughs> simply the truth. Well, it is funny, and, and it's, it's exhilarating, really. I mean, it combines great, great sorrow with great humor. Um, in a way that sort of that I find very uh, you know it adrenalized me as I was as I was reading it um and it's 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 a shift although I sort of I was excited when I started reading it because my 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 wife and I um used to read to one another um I should say this is many years ago before we had uh, kids um then we stopped reading to each other but um but a book that's really representative of that time to us is your book in a strange room um partly because it's an incredible book um, that we both love. Um, 
but also because it reduced the tears on on more than one occasion it left a, a heavy emotional imprint on us uh one we're very glad to have but i was very excited when i began the promise and i saw this you know you were moving from say first excuse me first person and third person as you as you did in that book but but here you sort of um I mean, you really go for it. You really sort of saw, I think you take a lot of risks um, and it's beautifully done, but you mentioned your sort of internal sensor or saying, well, I always tell my students, you can't do this, but how did you deal with the, with the worry and fear of it? If that is the right word of what you were doing or did, did deep down, did you think, no, this is the right approach? Um, well, thank you, firstly, for, for the mention of In a Strange Room. I, um, I had no idea I kept you and your wife company in that way, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if it made you tearful, but uh, it, it is the book that's probably closest to my heart, and it makes me happy to hear that um, it's touched some people. So thank you. It's a wonderful book. Um, Well, now I've distracted myself with sentiment and forgotten what your question was. Well, <laughs> Just the, how you how you dealt with that fear and uncertainty. Right. Of, um, of, thank you. Thanks for this new style. Not very well, I think, is the answer. I mean, I, <laughs> I, um, I'm very um, shy about sharing work while it's still in progress because it is mostly just terrible, you know, until until the very last <laughs> stages when I'm pulling stuff together and, and become slightly less terrible at that point. <laughs> But I, um, I did need reassurance, so I, I did show some pages to, you know, a couple of trusted confidants who, who, who I thought would be honest with me, and I said, please, just tell me, brutally, is this working or is it a mess? And I, I sort of got the reassurance that it was working, but, you know, those, those doubts come back very quickly, as I'm sure you'll understand. Um, you think, oh, well... She was a friend, she might have lied, or, or <laughs> it was only a handful of pages, you know, if it, if it had been more, it, it wouldn't have worked. Um, in the end, I suppose it's not that different to other books in that all your innate insecurities, which have much more to do with your temperament than the, the work, perhaps, um, want to make themselves heard, and um, they do, so. <laughs> You, you you bash your way through, um, and um, I did. I mean, I, I think the same insecurities arose over in a strange room, if I recall correctly. I I did have to show that to, to a few people. And again, for the same reason, those switches in narrative perspective are a very fundamental um, violation of, you know, the usual narrative rules. And um, of course they make you insecure. You you. You have to have very sound reasons for, for doing that or it won't work. And one can never trust that one's reasons are sound enough, I guess. Um, anyway, the, the only test finally is in, you know, publication and readership. And I felt somewhat vindicated in both cases, <laughs> or at least relieved. <laughs> relief, relief works. Um, so, if we if we read the book as as encompassing these this is the promise i'm talking about that encompasses these sort of political and social realities um of the sort of late apartheid era south africa and on into democratic south africa um i, I wondered about the the prominence of of religion in the book um rachel returns to to judaism there's a dutch reformed church minister 
who later becomes a sort of more charismatic sort of preacher um, who's sort of, you know, scheming for a grant of land and so on throughout the book. Why, why did you want to grant religion this degree of prominence in the story? Um, you know, once I decided on the device of four funerals, you, you also have, make, <laughs> you have to make decisions about, you know, the religious rituals that attend um, mm. funerals. So it was an opportunity for me to have some fun, first and foremost. I, um, you know, I could have had the whole family under the umbrella of one religion and then that would have involved some repetition. So it, it was more entertaining for the readers and for myself to, to vary, um, you know, what was on offer. Um, but, you know, part of, part of me meant, you know, I am playing with it, but, but part of me meant to play quite seriously in, in the sense that, um, you know, to state the obvious, religion um, is quite a force in the world. Um, and grow, growing up in apartheid time was, was also growing up in a time of a, of a very, very um, suppressive sort of Calvinist morality, um, which infiltrated every aspect of my childhood. Um, so, you know, sending that up was, a, was an act of revenge and a little bit of a, you know, um, yeah, letting, letting off steam for me, I guess. But, um, you know, on a, on, a, on a level that's perhaps not necessarily visible to, to all readers, the, the book for me is, is look, it's, a, it's about time, the passage of time, and it's about um, how different perceptions um, flicker through time, if you like. Um, so in a certain sense, it's, it's, it's giving expression to how I see being alive in the world, which is changing consciousness through time. I, I don't want to get heavy and, and, and pretentious about it, but if you're going to be dealing with the big questions, then, um, you know, religion isn't irrelevant. Um, it's often seen to me that religion, and I, I really have no, you know, desire to step on any, any toes of anybody in the audience, but it's often seen to me that religion um, trivializes and reduces the um, mystery of the world rather than, you know, expanding it or, or focusing our eye on it um, in appropriate ways. So I suppose in some way I, I wanted to parody Lampoon the, the, the kind of um, self-important rituals that, that people get up to in, in, in and around what they believe, uh, but also maybe to show in the background um, some of the more mysterious, um, I, I don't know how to put it, potentialities of, of the place we're in, hence, you know, um, the possibility that Mars spirit is still alive and drifting about and um, the perception and awareness of two jackals moving across the felt just as just as significant and, and important as any of the other the other characters here I was I suppose in some way trying to you know bring into balance um, the complexity uh, of the world as I see it as opposed to a much more ordered and comfortable way that I think um, you know um, maybe religious systems would, would have us um, see things. Mm. So before I, before I trip over my own grandiosity, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> well, to talk about something that does uh, deepen the mystery and wonder of the world, uh, literature and other writers. Um, 
I wanted to uh, talk about potential literary antecedents. I, I thought I might just throw a few names at you and you can tell me what sticks and what doesn't. How does that sound? What sticks in the sense that, yeah, yeah, been there, done that. <laughs> See if it, uh, if, well, as, as I was reading, like certain, certain writers or certain works came to mind. Um, but sure. uh, as, 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 as I'm sure you'll have experienced before, sometimes these are people you haven't even read or people you haven't thought about in years or people who have no bearing on it at all. But um, it's a personal thing. But uh, I'll, I'll throw them out and see how they go. I've got three. Um, so at one point you follow a character to the very brink and perhaps even just over the lip of death in a way that really reminded me of what Tolstoy does in the death of Ivan Illich. Um, and that's the first, okay? Secondly, the roving stream of consciousness you use to tell the story feels very much like, like Virginia Woolf. And, and I wondered with Anton, these you mentioned these concentric circles, at one point concentric circles, I think two or three times they, they applied to him, but they reminded me of these leaden rings dissolving in the air that we read about at the start of, of Mrs. Dalloway. And the third and final one, um, you know, the matters of land and money and racial tension. I know they're not uncommon in South African fiction, but also the idea of a coffin not containing the body it's supposed to. Those things put me in mind of um, Nadine Gordimer's great story, Six Feet of the Country. Um, do any of these tally with your own conception of where the promise sits in relation to other other books or other writers? Um, not necessarily on, on on the conscious planned level, but in a in a in a more general sense, yes, I uh, absolutely. Somebody else um, pointed out to me, and I, I think it's true, that um, it's it's in epics, um, and he used Tolstoy as an example that very often, you know, characters that you think of as, as side characters, marginal characters, suddenly take a, you know, a position center stage. So that device, which, which I very definitely use, is something you would see in Tolstoy, but I had no conscious, you know, uh, intention or, or, or knowledge that I was emulating. Um, Virginia Woolf, oddly, um, was a writer I'd never come across until I was busy writing this book, um, and I mentioned, you know, my project to, to one of my writer friends. It was probably one of my anxious moments when I was trying to talk things through, and, and he said, oh, but you absolutely have to read Virginia Woolf. I mean, this is, these are her concerns, and I, I did begin to read Virginia Woolf quite obsessively while I was working. Um, too late, really, for her to affect the architecture of the book, per se, but just in time for her to affect its ethos, if I can, if I can frame it in that way, uh, to give me a kind of permission to continue to do what I was doing. I mean, I think far more of a, a, a presence, an active presence for me was Faulkner, who obviously you know, belongs to the same time and stable as Virginia Woolf, but, but Faulkner's um, preoccupation, it seems to me, is, is, is far more with voice that was time. Time was Virginia Woolf's big thing, and, and time, you know, is, is a strong concern in the book. So you could say again, unconsciously, my reading of Virginia Woolf at the right moment did, did carry through. Um, Nadine Gordimer, um, yes, I mean, clearly she's a preoccupation for, for me as she is for all South African writers. She's, she's uh, you know, part of the, I, I, I don't know what you would call them, but the, 
the pantheon of literary spirits that, that hang over South African writing. But if there was a book of hers that, that more consciously pushed itself into the frame for me, it was um, The Conservationist. Um, with its concerns about, you know, the, the claims to the land and, um, of course, the body which they keep bearing and which keeps rising to the surface. Um, you could say in a metaphorical way that's, that scenario is playing out here too, not, not the way it does, you know, literally in Gordimer's book. But, um, yeah, the, the presence of these and many other books uh, was uh, very, very much hanging around um, at the time that I was writing. And um, I'm sort of paid inadequate homage to, to these and other writers too. Well, um, one more question from me and then I'm gonna go to um, audience questions. Um, you know, in, in the section of the book that takes place in 2004, um, Anton's attitude to South Africa is described as a curious mixture of optimism and unease. How would you define your attitude to, to your country now? Was that your attitude then? Was it the same as Anton's or, or how, how has that sort of relationship gone? It's funny, it's, it, it can be hard to answer those questions even a, even a short time after you've been through a period like that. I mean, mm. um, I mean one, of the, one of the most attractive things about writing this book was that it required no research from me. I've, I've lived through this time. <laughs> So my sense was that all of this information is sort of under the skin at my fingertips. But in fact, it isn't always. So even thinking back to the Mbeki era, which is not that long ago, I, I had to project myself um, there and try to try to sort of feel in my cells how, how it was back then. Um, you know, the historical present tends to push everything out very quickly. Um, my sense of South Africa now, I'm afraid, is not a not a very uh, sunny one. Um, I mean, I think I've been pretty clear in you know what sort of downward um, arc we've been following, um, and and it's I think we're just a little bit further down that curve, basically, um, at a, at a point where yes. Perhaps South Africans in a, in a strange way are more realistic about the country they're living in than ever before. We are definitely done with the sort of euphoric delusions of the Mandela era, which were naive and never very real. Um, the Mbeki years introduced a whole other uh, sense of being here, one, one that was definitely far more um, sketchy and, and, and I think um, ambiguous, but um, there was no doubt about the direction we were headed in once Zuma came to power. At this point, um, it's, it's more about picking up the pieces and trying to construct something different for the future, but uh, a lot of that depends on how our ruling party, which is simply too embedded um, in the popular vote here to be dislodged. It, it depends on how they can reframe themselves for the future. And the signs are not good. Uh, too, too tangled up with infighting to actually um, get, get out of the mud, basically, and um, be, begin to make a path forward. But, um, you know, against that, this, this is hardly, you know, a note for um, great optimism, but against that you have to set the fact that 
the rest of the planet doesn't look too good either. So <laughs> this is, this is just, I think, a very, very challenging um, period for Earth um, in, in multiple ways. Uh, it's going to be very, um, it'll be very interesting to see how we find a, a path forward from where we are. Um, so yeah, with, without wanting to plunge your entire audience into terminal, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to be, you know, um, sunny and sparkly eyed at, at this time, but South Africa or anywhere else. Okay, well, um, handbrake turn now into yeah. uh, a question from, from anonymous attendee. Um, hello, anonymous attendee. Um, on the humor point, obviously this was written while we were still talking about humor, but on the humor point, um, a light question. I loved one of the final scenes where Amor is on the roof having a hot flush. As a woman in her fifties, I could relate to the brilliant description and ponder, how did you get that so right? Well, thank you for that, especially because I'm never sure if I do, do get <laughs> these things right. Um, I, um, you know, I, as I say, I wanted to reflect time and, and its changes in, in individual people. Um, I could have taken a male character, um, you know, to body this fourth. Uh, it's certainly, you know, an aspect of experience that I'm familiar with. But I decided to try a female character for various reasons. I, um, I had to have a lot of very, very frank and open conversations with my female friends, is the truth, about their bodies, fundamental changes at particular times in their lives. And it was most educational and very, very conducive to closer relations with my friends. So I recommend it. Um, and uh, although it seems absolutely obvious, it, it came as a, a kind of a startling insight to me that men and women have utterly different perceptions of reality because they navigate it in different physical vessels. I suspect this is something that women are far more aware of than men are, but um, I did learn something. Um, so thank, thank, thank you. I'm glad I persuaded you with that scene. It, it, it matters. Um, a question from Christina. Um, this is to do with a matter that was discussed in Christina's book club meeting about the promise. Um, there's a question in the book about whether Amor has really heard her father make the promise or whether she has misunderstood the conversation. Um, any light you can shed on that? Was it deliberate? Yes, it was deliberate. Um, what's harder to explain, I, I guess, is why, but it's, it's part of the same um, approach that involves what I was saying earlier, that I, I dislike making um, one character the heroine and another character the villain. Um, because it doesn't resemble the way I think the real world works. Um, again, very often in, in books, things are very definite and very clear, which they have to be if you want a very clear and definite line of action. But one of the reasons the world isn't full of definite, clear lines of action is because information is very often not that hard-edged. So I wanted to leave it slightly, again, open to question whether a more really heard this, whether she imagined it, um, and whether this moral impulse that she's following through on is in fact based on something real. Again, for the simple reason that it seems to resemble what I perceive about the world, which is very often, you know, murky, unclear, 
certainly my life is full of far more questions than answers. So I wanted to gesture in that direction in the book as well. Thank you. Um, Karen Jones uh, says that the, um, the book or our conversation um, is prescient given the, the current Russian subjugation of free will and access to information, um, which is corruption of power. Uh, I'm also thinking of the universality of family promises and secrets that get played out across generations with lasting impact. How long has this story been gestating in your mind and what helped it to find expression? Um, I, I don't know. Really, really the story um, came to me um, after a conversation with a friend who was telling me about four family funerals of his own that he that he'd attended and in a semi-whimsical way, really, it occurred to me that, oh, that would be quite an interesting way to tell a family story. You don't usually um, receive a story in, in that form, these sort of four blocks of time with big gaps in between. So, you know, the initial impulse for the book was offhand, um, but you don't go with an idea just because you, you know, you, you think it's, sexy or attractive, you, you go with it because it in some way represents some inner preoccupation of your own, something you're wrestling with. So in a larger sense, um, obviously that idea chimed with an inner struggle of mine, which, which uh, quite honestly, I think is about aging, um, getting closer to the end of my life. Um, and, you know, that involves a lot of Pre um, a, a lot of um, meditation or contemplation of um, how things have changed um, in my life and in the country around me, in the lives of my friends and so on, and, and what it all means. So, um, you know, how, how long that preoccupation goes back, I can't really tell you, but um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's one that accumulates or creeps up on you. And it really only takes a solid form when an idea provides an avenue for it. And, and that's what happened in this case. I'm sorry, I can't be more specific, but, but very often I, you know, um, I'm the person who has, um, you know, uh, I, I have no clearer idea about how to answer that question than, than anyone else, essentially. <laughs> Thank you, Karen, for that question. Um, this one is from anonymous attendee as well. They're really, they're really uh, pounding the keyboard tonight. He's prolific. Um, <laughs> what is one piece of writing advice that you've received in your life uh, that's been particularly valuable to you and that you've already held on to? Um, this is someone at the beginning of their writing journey and uh, they're unsteady about seeing the value in their own work. Hmm. Well, I tell you what, something that's always stuck with me comes from an interview I read um, with Tom Stoppard from a very long time ago. And he, he talked in that interview and I'm, I may be misquoting him slightly, but I don't think um, in, a, in a significant way. Um, and he said that he thought you had to take your reader by surprise. I think the word he used was ambush. You have to ambush your reader. And I understood him, well, he, he was probably talking about um, your audience member as opposed to reader, but really where books are concerned, I don't, I don't see them as that, different in the sense that um, if there's somebody watching events on a stage, you 
need to keep them entertained and surprised. Um, really, the task is the same in the writing of a book. You want to you want to be offering something that entertains, but at the same time, you need to be surprising your reader all the time. And, and, and that's what I assume he means by ambush. And I, I, I would I would understand that to be on a larger scale. In other words, the, the story, the narrative should never go exactly where people might expect it to. So um, you, 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 you don't want the, re the reader to be ahead of you at any point, but that is equally true on the level of the sentence. If you, if you begin a sentence in a particular way, uh, it seems to me there should always be a slightly surprising element to a sentence so that perhaps at the end of the sentence, it's, the resolution of it is not what the reader might expect. You, I know it's very small, the tension involved is very small, but it really matters in a cumulative sort of way that if you, if, if you begin every sentence and you are able to complete it in your mind before you come to the, the actual end when you're reading it, um, you are not being surprised by that, right? Uh, and cumulatively, the sense that you will get from that piece of writing is that it lacks a certain edge. It, it, has, a, it has a kind of a, a dullness to it. By contrast, writers that take you by surprise sentence after sentence and in the larger scheme of the plot, uh, you're likely to return to them. Um, and, but, but, you know, there is a converse to that. You, you can't surprise for the sake of surprising. So uh, shocking or startling people just for its own sake, um, it's a cheap effect and people know that they're being had, basically. So you, you want to surprise people in a way that in retrospect seems inevitable, if I can put it that way. So if that isn't a piece of right uh, advice that puts you off completely, you might want to run on it for just a little while. <laughs> I think that's that's superb advice. Um, a question from Hadia Maulawi. Uh, I see a big CD collection in the background. How does music inform Damon's creative process? Uh, I, I'm so embarrassed in these Zoom conversations that I, I reveal. <laughs> I'm the, I'm the last person with a CD. Um, I like objects, which is the reason I, I like books on my shelf as opposed to, you know, reading them on a Kindle too. Anyway, um, music arrived quite late in my life. Actually, I was not a teenager who listened to music. Um, and the first time really that it came a significant presence for me was in my thirties when I was living in an isolated house in the country and wanted to fill up the silence. Um, and I began then listening to borrowed cassette tapes, um, which makes CDs seem really revolutionary. And um, I guess I discovered quite quickly that my natural um, sound, if there is one, was, was mostly jazz. So I frequently listen to jazz while I'm writing. And I do think this particular book is quite strongly inflected by um, jazz in the sense of the, the looseness of some of the rhythms and the improvisations that take place. Without wanting to lean on it too hard, I think some of those jazz rhythms did find their way into the, into the words. Wonderful, yeah, I can, I, now you say that, 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 makes, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I have a couple uh, of questions I'd, I'd love to ask you before we, before we wrap. Um, this one's a very a very practical one but um you know you you won the booker prize um what sort of impact does that have 
you know, specifically on your on your writing, both in a sort of, you know, you're someone who has who has cycled through through different approaches to writing in a really in a really exciting way, I think, and never more so than in this book. This one big wins, you know, one of the biggest literary prizes on earth. How does that play out? Do you think, oh, I should write in that style again, or should I, or or do you want to, you know, that's done. I want to do something completely different because it's so distinctive. And in a practical sense, does it make it any harder or easier to to get to the laptop or pick up the pen or however you however you inscribe? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the the actual truth is that I don't know because um, I've been so busy talking since. Um, <laughs> The book fell on me that I, I haven't had a chance <laughs> to try. The day will come. I don't I don't expect it's going to be any different to um, how writing has ever been, which is to say it's always been the most difficult task in the world for me, and I expect it to, you know, to take up where it left off. I don't think that's about to alter. Um, the slightly different question that you put in the form of... Um, when I return to this particular mode of storytelling, I don't know, that's been on my mind, to be honest, um, because it did feel um, in, a, in a strange way as if it um, unlocked something for me. Um, certainly narrative possibilities that one could take somewhere interesting. But I also believe that every book has its own voice and that part of the project of a book is, is, is having to discover what that voice is. You know, uh, fi finding out how the book wants to speak itself, um, if I can say it like that. So um, this particular solution to that problem very much fits with this book, whether it will fit with a a different idea remains to be seen. I mean, there are ideas that would work in this way, um, but I'm not sure what the next idea is that's going to sort of seize me by the lapels and demand my attention. So um, I don't really know. And, and, and one of my impulses as a writer is always to try and find something new and some new way of doing it. So um, I still have to figure all this out, but. Um, for better or worse, I'm so distracted at the moment, I'm afraid that um, I, I have no ready answers to hand. Mm. Well, okay, my, my last question. Um, I've heard that you're gonna um, cynically exploit your book a win by publishing a collection of short stories next, those famed, that famed cash cow of the literary world. Is that, is that true? Well, I have to defend myself against your accusation. <laughs> I, it is true. <laughs> It is true I'm working on a collection of short stories, but in fact, this was part of the contract I signed uh, with Chatter, along with the promise it was, it was for mm -hmm. a collection. So I'm not cashing in on anything. <laughs> it happened to be in the works already. Um, and incidentally, is a far more um, overwhelming challenge than I... Um, had given it mental credit for writing short stories is not is not simpler or um, easier or shorter than writing a novel. It's uh, it's a whole different challenge. So um, yeah, I'm not um, I'm not I'm not working on them at the moment, which I probably you know I probably should be. But anyway, I will I will return to them at the first possible moment. Well, I very much look forward to uh, to getting the chance to read them. I cannot wait and to read. Um, 
whatever else flows from your from your pen. Um, Damon, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and your answers. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. I just wanted to pop up and say my own thanks for such an extraordinary conversation. What a wonderful hour spent in both of your company, full of searching questions and rich answers that have explored um, the power of literature, history, people, place and human experience. And we've loved every minute of it. So The Promise is out this week in the UK in paperback. And we hope that everyone who hasn't already read it will pick up a copy and enjoy it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Damon. Thank you to our audience for the excellent questions. I wish we could have spent even longer talking, but for now, for this evening, that's good night from all of us. Um, and we'll see you again soon. Good night. Good night. Good night.